exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Divine love, we lift our eyes to you in hope. Have your way in our lives and help us to grow more and more into instruments of goodness that fill this whole world with wondrous peace. Amen. And please be seated. We are currently in a sermon series that is exploring our church's values. And so if you're newly visiting with us, this is a great time to visit Pearl because our values articulate the fundamental essence and character that we desire to embody as a faith community. In light of all that we've been facing, it's our sincere hope here at Pearl that our values can reground and retether us because we've been facing so much difficulty, experiencing so much change. It's our sincere hope here at Pearl that our values can cast an elevated vision for the kind of life that we desire to embody, no matter what it is that we face in this world. And so far, we've considered our values of gratitude, inclusion, and renewal. And this morning, we're going to consider our value of peace. About this value, we write, through generous life and sacrificial death, Jesus revealed a way of being in the world that culminates in the end of violence, brokenness, and suffering. We therefore value all that promotes peace in every form, whether that be personal, interpersonal, national, global, or even cosmic. Over and over again, the Psalms point to creation and declare, God made it. Give God thanks. You see, there's this ancient way of seeing the world that that simply looked up, looked out at the sun, at the stars, at the ocean and mountains and creatures roaming the earth. This beautiful creation that led to the realization that much of what is actually has very little to do with humankind. And it's for this reason that the earliest human beings concluded, well, this, all of this must have been the work of something, maybe even of someone else. They thought perhaps it's some kind of divine being at work in the world. And very early on, it was thought that perhaps the sun was God. I mean, could you imagine God, a flaming yellow heat-producing ball of fire that rose and set and made a day? That's an incredible God. But after some time, this idea began to fade because the sun just didn't change, right? It rose, it set, it rose, it set, it rose, it set, it made a day, the day went to sleep, it made another day. And so they thought, well, that's not God. Perhaps up there, out there, somewhere beyond the sun was God or even God's. Perhaps there is a being so powerful that it even controls that ball of fire. Can you imagine a God that powerful? And they thought perhaps this God, these gods, were, were what created this beautiful world. 
Perhaps they were the ones who make the world work. Perhaps they're the ones who make things grow. And eventually, in some cultures, this divine power was assigned gender, causing some to think that perhaps he, he is what makes everything go. But as we know well from the last few years, sometimes things don't go. Rain fell too much and there was a flood. Rain fell too little and there was a drought. Earthquakes shook the earth and whirlwinds would toss things around. This God, they thought, is a mercurial fellow. We better please him. And with this kind of ancient thinking came the beginning of religious practice. That is to say, religion was birthed into the world. Nomadic tribes had their beliefs, they had their practices, and and as they settled into the land that they claimed as their own, their gods were central to it all. Land, customs, sacrifices, tithes and offerings, wars and worship. You name it, God, which basically every culture has a name for. God was central to it all. Fast forward thousands of years to 2021, land, customs, sacrifices, tithes and offerings, wars, worship, God, for many of us today, still so very central to it all. And yet, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. I mean, think about that for a moment. Like, just let that rattle around in your brain for a moment. Land, customs, sacrifices, tithes and offerings, wars, worship, God. In almost every tribe and culture and people from the earliest days, and yet according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. I mean, sure, some claim that there is no God, and perhaps it's for the very reason that 1 John mentions. God has never been verifiably identified. But others There are many others who, like their ancient ancestors, look at all of this, the majesty of creation, the intricacy of a human body, the mystery of a soul that makes a person a person, that causes many to believe in some kind of divine, relational, knowing, personal being. Now, some claim that this divine being got all of this going and then went off somewhere far, far away. And some claim that this divine being is is way up there somewhere still overseeing it all. And some claim that this divine being is in everything. Even the ivy outside of the windows that we watch change season by season by season. And yet, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. And so this morning, I'd like to talk about where God is. And before I do that, I'd like to talk about God's essence. And this is a tricky thing, honestly, if you take some time to think about it. A few years ago, we had a Christmas service, and it was the Sunday after Christmas. And so we just had a big family service. We had all of the kids come up and sit in the front row, and we gave them paper and crayons. And the idea was that they would color something while we were talking as adults. And hopefully, something that we said would also be good for the kids. But we wanted them to have something to really do. And so we gave them paper, and we gave them crowns, and we said to them, draw God. (laughs) That should take a while, right? (laughs) I mean, just for a moment, if you were to have to draw God, what would you draw? What would you draw if you were to draw God? It actually tells you something about what you think about divinity. And so first, I'd like to talk about the essence of God. And second, I'd like to talk about where God is. And then because of what I say may seem too simple or too implausible or maybe even too unchristian, 
I'd like to conclude by taking some time to try and show how we actually see all of these ideas that I'm about to talk about in our messy, provocative, ancient scriptures. So beginning with the essence of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 tells us, God is love. I'll say that again. God is love. And one more time. God, some like to call that ultimate reality. Some like to call that the ground of our being. To make it a little more contemporary, the motor that makes all of this go. God, the thing that is sustaining it all. God is love. What is the essence of God? Answer, love. Well, that's really nice, Mike, but what exactly is love, right? I mean, love, love, love. I love my toaster waffle. You know, I love my wife. I love my husband. I love my partner. I love my shirt, right? We just use that word all of the time. So there's this famous passage in the Bible that usually gets read at weddings, which is, which is great. But this passage is about more than marriage. It's the paradigmatic passage in the scriptures, especially the New Testament, on love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 reads, Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, if God is love, And this is the paradigmatic Bible passage on love. That is to say, if love and God are actually one and the same thing, then then bear with me just for a moment while I swap out the word love with the word God and read this famous passage again. God is patient. God is kind. God is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. God does not insist on her own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God never ends. I love that. I believe that this is a sound, biblical, ancient Christian definition for God who is love. Now, on to the next question. Okay, so where is God? Answer, God is in the midst of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. And so you see, God is abiding in us is the same thing as our abiding in love. Because, as 1 John makes clear, God and love are not two separate realities. They are intrinsically united as one reality. Therefore, we who profess devotion to God abide in God when we abide in love. Or, I guess it could be said that we do not abide in God, even if we confess God, if we do not abide in love. Now, that isn't to say that God isn't at every moment sustaining and upholding all things. That We're talking here about abiding in the divine, which would be to abide in love. But furthermore, according to these words, those who do not speak of God or even profess God may actually abide in God if they abide in love. I think that's important for religious people to hear. We who profess devotion to God may abide in God if we abide in love, or we may not abide in God even if we confess God if we do not abide in love. And they who do not speak of God or even profess God actually 
truly abide in God if they abide in love. From 1 John, God is love and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. And all those, although these words may sound really radical, they're very Jesus-like. Uh, you remember that parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25 called the sheep and the goats? Right, that's a famous parable. In that parable, there's a king and before the king are all of the people of the world. And the king says to those at his right hand, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. In other words, you who abided in love abide in me and I in you. But, but catch this, those who abided in God didn't even know that they were abiding in God when they loved. The parable goes on, the righteous will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? When was it that we saw you sick in prison and visited you? And the king will answer, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it unto me. Now, conversely, there are others in this parable who believed that they abided in God. Like, I, I, I imagine them thinking in their head all of the right thoughts, all of the catechisms, all of the doctrines, all of the beliefs that you need to have to belong to God or to abide in God. But you see, they did not love, we're told in this parable. And so they came to find out that they actually didn't abide in God. And this is what we read in 1 John verse 16. God is love and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. In verse 12, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. And so, who is God? What is God? Well, God is love. And where is God? Well, God is abiding in those who love. Which means that God could very well be abiding in those who are irreligious. And it could very well mean that God is not abiding in those who are religious. And this brings us to a very important point, which is this. God transcends land. God transcends customs and sacrifices and tithes and offerings and belief systems and wars and worship. Because love transcends all of these categories. And this is because God is not on a side or in a tribe or for a people. We have to get our minds around this. God is on and in and for love, wherever it's made manifest in this entire world. Now, you may be thinking, well, Mike, what about Jesus, right? Where's Jesus fit into this whole thing? And as a Christian in a Christian church on a Sunday morning, that's a, a fair question, so I'm glad you asked it. <laughs> In Christianity, the manifestation of God as love is made incarnate in Jesus. So, so Jesus who touches the unclean, Jesus who heals the broken, Jesus who feeds the hungry, Jesus who dines with the sinful, quote unquote sinful, Jesus who instead of war and violence to accomplish his will, allows violence and dominance and control, all of the unloving ways of this world, he allows those things to crush his own life. What is that called? Well, I think that we could call this the incarnation of love, which is the manifestation of God. 
which is why Jesus can say that he abides in the Father, and those who abide in him abide in the Father as well, because God is love, and Jesus is the incarnation of love. So those who abide in Jesus, who is love, abide in God, who is love. Trying to put this whole Christian thing together, you know? You see, this gospel, which literally means good news, it undercuts theological arrogance as well as pious isolation. This gospel, which literally means good news, is more than justice, and it's greater than faith and hope. For love is the presence of God. It is the presence of God. And in every moment of genuine love, we are dwelling in God and God is dwelling in us. Or if it's not us, but we're observing it, we are observing the very manifest presence of God. Or to make that language Christian, we are looking at Christ in the life of another person who is the incarnation of God, who is love. And so at Pearl, we recognize love in every form, in every person, in every act, both inside and outside of the church. For in love, which is very much the same thing as saying in Christ, we taste and see the enfleshment of God itself. In love, in Christ, we abide in God. In love, in Christ, God abides in us. In love, in Christ, we participate in an ever-growing way of being that is moving the whole world forward into and toward the consummation of peace peace. Now, before I talk about that, I want to say one more thing about love. In the Gospels, Jesus summarizes the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. You see, Jesus makes it clear in these concise words that we are commanded to love God and we are commanded to love others as we love ourselves. And this, I think, is difficult. I think that some of us deeply struggle to love God because of the things we've been told about God. I can't tell you how many people come to this church saying, I am like one step away from just not even trying to be in a church or a religious community anymore. I hear it over and over and over again. I also think that many of us struggle to love others because we struggle to love ourselves. Because Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And I kind of think that we struggle to love ourselves because of some of the things that we've been told about God. Now, 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 coming full circle, maybe this isn't a very deep and real place inside of us, the reason we struggle to love. Maybe we struggle to love because the God we've been told about makes loving ourselves very difficult. I think that's true for very many of us in this world. Beloved church, let it be known that God is love. I'll actually read 1 Corinthians 13 to you. God is patient toward you. God is kind to you. God is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude to you. God does not insist on her own way, which is love, even though I do believe that love is winning and wooing all of our hearts. God is not irritated by you. God is not resentful toward you. God does not rejoice in your wrongdoing, which is simply anything less than love. God rejoices in the truth, which is always the embodiment of love. God bears all things on your behalf. God believes all things are possible for your life. God hopes all things even in your despair. And God endures all things for you, even the shame and guilt that make you want to crawl into a hole and die. And this God, love itself, we are told, never 
ever ends. And so let it be known again and again that God's love belongs to you. Doubt these words. Look at Jesus. His primary trouble was with religious people who said otherwise. And yet Jesus, on behalf of the divine, gave every part of himself to you, to me, to the other in love so that we might come to know the extravagant love of God. And this love, well, this love changes the way we think about God. It really does. And this love changes the way that we feel about ourselves. And this love truly, it truly renews our minds and it softens our hardened and callous and maybe even deeper than those things, worried and afraid hearts. And this love, this love of God, this God animates our hearts, our souls, so that we might live abundantly here in this world in love, which is the very same thing as abiding in the divine. And this brings me then to peace. About this value we write, generous life and sacrificial death Through generous life and sacrificial death, Jesus revealed a way of being in the world which culminates in the end of violence, brokenness, and suffering. We therefore value all that promotes peace in every form, personal, interpersonal, international, even cosmic. And that is because peace is the fruit of love. If you see people, especially religious people, saying that they follow God, but there there is no love or it lacks the fruit of peace, then it is not truly the love of God. It cannot be. Know God's love for you and suddenly there's peace between you and the divine. You cannot doubt it. Know God's love for others and suddenly you become a person of peace and relationships. You just have to if you look at them with the very love of God. Know God's love for this world and suddenly you care about and work toward peace in your home and in your neighborhood and in your school and your city and your state and in this creation that matters very deeply. Because peace is the fruit of love. And to love is to bear the fruit of peace. I like to say it this way. Peace is the offspring of love. Like love, the love of God and the love of the people of God who abide in love. They actually give birth in this world to peace. Peace is the offspring of love. If you were to attend one of our covenant classes, you'd hear about our dream for the world, which reads, our dream that we imagine and desire is nothing less than God's dream, the consummation of peace in a world integrated by divine love. But peace is an overused word, right? Kind of like love. What do we mean by peace? Well, about this word peace, we've written a biblical theology which attempts to capture what we think God is doing in the world. And and I'm not going to read it all to you this morning, which is a blessing, I think, to us all. (laughs) But in summary, uh, this, this theology about peace explains that the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, and the Greek word for peace, irene, uh, are about something much more substantial than a Hallmark card, right, that reads, uh, wishing you peace. No. In the Bible, peace is not a wish. In the Bible, peace is a determination. It has been decided that love makes peace. All kinds of real here and now in this world peace. The shalom of God is peace between humans and the divine. Uh, This peace is in one's own soul. You know how our soul just kind of fractures and disintegrates and we start to hide parts of ourselves and and fracture into little, little pieces? The love of God starts to bring all of those pieces back together into integration. It's peace in relationships. It's peace between nations. Wouldn't that be glorious? And it's peace between humankind and this creation that we all call 
home. And so here at Pearl, we value peace. We laud peace. We celebrate peace. We sing about peace wherever we see it, even if it's on the other side of the world and happening at the hands of those who think differently and look differently than us. For peace is peace is peace is peace. Can we just say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Peace is the offspring of love. It is not monopolized by Christians. In fact, it is often, too often, undone by Christians. Peace is the offspring of love, which is to say that peace is the child of God who is always and forever the expression of love in this world. And at Pearl, we will work toward peace at all costs. If Pearl's your home, uh, we will work toward peace in your heart and in your relationships with God and with others and in your career and hobbies and in this church and in this neighborhood and with our neighbors next door and throughout this world. For peace is the fruit of God's love. And at Pearl, we deeply believe that we are truly loved, that we are intimately held, that we are gently pulled forward into ongoing transformation and renewal. And awakening to this divine love Well, it's then that we are filled to overflowing. So much so that love begins to spill out of us, giving birth to the fruit of peace in this world. May it be so, and let us pray. Divine love, we lift our eyes to you in hope. Have your way in our lives and help us to grow more and more into instruments of goodness that fill this whole world with wondrous peace. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.